I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray again before we get started, and uh, I'm going to pray specifically for a couple things. One, uh, Jen is on her way down to Cincinnati Children's right now with Owen, who is just screaming and screaming and screaming. It's, it's, uh, the last couple of days is almost like the pump just stopped pumping the medicine for him. We don't know what's going on. But we are stretched pretty thin with that. She's driving through accidents and snow, and so we're going to pray for her as she's doing that. And I'm also going to pray for Scott Bruns, who is the director of Sida Hills Camp. So many of our families have been really blessed by involvement at Sida Hills. And he has, he's got bad knees. He had a knee replaced a few years ago. It went bad. They had to put a, like a temporary one in and fight infection forever. And he's, tomorrow he's having that done again, a knee replacement. So his job is very active. He's roaming around the camp all the time. And uh, he's just very dependent on his body to get him around. So we're going to pray for that for him too. One announcement that goes with camp, if you are planning on participating in camp this summer, uh, the dates are available. Registration is going to open earlier than normal. So December 7th, registration is going to open for family camp, for kids camp, all of that's going to open December 7th. So as you're thinking about like Christmas gifts and budgeting and all that stuff, think about can I make camp fit in to that? You don't have to pay for all of camp at registration. There's a deposit that you pay. But uh, if, if you want to get a jump on things, December 7th is your date. So as a family, I think we're probably registering for family camp with the, the week that includes the 4th of July, like right before that. And then I know Carrie is planning on going to the high school camp the week after that. So we're just going to like leave her in the woods for two days down there. And that way we don't have to drive up and drive back down to, to leave her there. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance to come together and put ourselves under your word. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would understand what it is that you're saying to us today, and that we would know how you want us to respond. So I pray for Jen and for Owen as they're making their way down to Cincinnati Children's. Pray the Lord that you would get them there safely, that you would help uh, Jen to be alert and awake and, and deal with all the stress and the screaming and everything. Lord, we pray that you'd give some answers and some help. We're thankful for the the many good days that Owen has had since getting that pump installed. And uh, we acknowledge that it's, it's really hard when those bad days come. So we need your help. Lord, we think of Scott. We're thankful for the way that you've used him to grow the ministry of Cider Hill so that it, it has blessed so many families and individuals over the years. Lord, we pray that his surgery tomorrow would go well, that he would be able to heal quickly and that he would uh, be able to enjoy uh, freedom of movement and strength and be pain-free for the first time in many years after he recovers from this. pray that you continue to use that camp in this church and in the many other churches that are so blessed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I need you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're looking at Acts chapter 4 today, the last half of it, verses 23 through 37. We're going to start with a summary of what happened last week, so if you want to turn to page 912 in the Black Pew Bible, you'll find Acts chapter 4, and uh, the first verse we're going to look at is verse 13. This past week and a half, there's been a very interesting trial in the news. Maybe some of you guys have watched the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, right? Well, 2,000 years ago, as we saw last week, 2,000 years ago, there was a trial in Jerusalem, and it was kind of a ridiculous trial. Peter and John had... Uh, publicly proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus, forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. 
They had healed a man who for 40 years had been brought every day and laid at the beautiful gate of the temple in order to beg because he was lame from birth. Because of these good words and this good deed, their enemies were jealous and arrested them. They spent the night in prison. They were then brought to trial before the Sanhedrin. And we used this picture of the Sanhedrin. It's a group of 71, so 70 key leaders, religious and civic leaders in Judaism at the time. And the high priest makes the, the one for the 71. They had this room in the temple complex where it was basically, it was a trial, it was a courtroom. So you'd bring the accused in, you'd set him in the middle of this, this uh, semicircle of 71 hostile people. And you're trying to intimidate them, trying to get them to stop doing what you don't want them to do or do what you do want them to do. This is the environment that Peter and John found themselves in last week. And though it was a very intimidating environment, they refused to be intimidated. In fact, they spoke boldly of Jesus. In verse 13 of Acts, I love this, it says, Now when they, that is the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And we talked about last week how we hope that brings you hope. You do not have to be impressive. You don't have to have the PhD. You don't have to have the straight A's. You don't have to have the, the right last name or pedigree or training. You can be a regular person. Like Peter and John. Peter's a fisherman. John's just a young guy at this point. John might still be a teenager at this point in history. Maybe 19. Regular guys. The Sanhedrin looks at them. And they recognize that they have been with Jesus. Because Jesus has transformed them. You can be used in bold, big ways for the kingdom of God if you will be with Jesus and allow him to transform you. Now, that doesn't mean education, experience, things like that don't matter. But being with Jesus is a whole lot more important. The Sanhedrin said, you guys knock it off. Stop telling people about Jesus. Stop saying he rose from the dead. Nobody rises from the dead. Don't heal people. Stop it. How did they respond? Verse 19. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's my prayer that we would be people like that. That we have, through the word, through relationship with Jesus, we have seen and heard things. We know Jesus, not just about Jesus, but we know Jesus in such a way that we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. That as we rub shoulders with regular people out there, our love for Jesus, our desire to be a witness for Jesus, like they were a witness for Jesus, that it comes out of us because we are so convinced that he is the Lord of all, that he has saved our souls, that he's risen from the dead, that we will rise with him, that he heals us like he healed the, the lame guy, he forgives our sin. We're convinced of all of this that we just have to tell people. And if somebody tells us to shut up, we're going to say, I have to obey God rather than you. We had a visitor with us last week who came and asked questions afterwards, great questions, like how do you jive this with submission to the authorities, the governing authorities and all that? Like they're basically telling the, the governing authorities, we will not listen to you. 
How do you jive that with the Roman government, the Jewish government, our American government? Really good questions. I encourage you guys to wrestle through those kind of things. How do we remain faithful to God if those in authority over us are telling us to be unfaithful to God? Something you should wrestle through. The point of last week was simply this. Common people plus a great Savior, specifically being with a great Savior, time with Him, equals a bold witness. You can be courageous. You can be bold. You can be the kind of Christian that stands firmly on the truth, that as the world tells you to embrace a lie, you can say, I will not do that. I know the truth. His name is Jesus, and I must stand with that truth. You could risk losing the promotion at work. You could risk losing your good grades at school. You could risk losing your friends, even your family members, maybe your freedom, and maybe even your life. But you will be the kind of Christian who can boldly say, I will stand with Jesus, the truth. To do that, you need to be with Jesus. You don't become that kind of Christian without being with Jesus. All right, today, page 912 still, Acts 4, 23 through 37. What happened? After they were released with the threat, and don't keep teaching about Jesus, don't do these things, don't you dare do this, we're going to let you go, but you better behave. What did they do? How did, how did they go back to life? Verse 23. When they, were released, or when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. That's not surprising, right? Big thing happens in your life, you want to go tell your friends. It's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing, but don't miss the importance of a word in there. Friends. This is not just a group of people who believe the same kind of things and are working together to spread certain ideas. These are not just co-laborers. They're not even just... Um, partners in a cause. These are friends. We need friendships inside the church. Everybody here needs other people here, not just as somebody to sit next to on Sunday morning, but as a friend. You can't all be friends with everybody, at least at the same level. But every one of us here if we are going to be faithful followers of Jesus, we need each other. We need friendships centered on Jesus. And I'm just so thankful that when Luke is writing this, he, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses that word friend there. He doesn't say when they were released, they went back to the church. That would have been an equally valid thing to say. They, he doesn't say they went back to their comrades, to their co-workers, to the other the other people that loved Jesus. No, he says, to their friends and reported what had happened. Verse 24. When they heard it, how many? We don't know. The church is thousands of people. It's a few days old, but it's thousands of people now at this point. Maybe this is just the, that little small group of 120 that was meeting in the room. Maybe they're, maybe they're standing out in the public temple again where they got in trouble in the first place and they're, they're shouting to everybody. We, we don't really know for sure. When they heard it, when the other Christians heard it, they 
lifted their voices together to God. So their, their immediate gut-level response to the news of the arrest, release, and threatening of Peter and John. Their immediate response is prayer together as friends. What did they say? Sovereign Lord, sovereign ruler over everything. You, speaking to God, you are the ruler of everything. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, I assume that there's not 120 or a few thousand people who spontaneously break out with the exact same words in unison with each other. I assume this is probably Peter leading this prayer and everybody's joining along in spirit. But whoever it is that's leading this grounds the prayer, the response to the threat, grounds it in the sovereignty of God and grounds the sovereignty of God in the fact that God is the creator of everything. If you are a Christian, you must believe that God is the creator of everything. You look at the, the book of Genesis and the creation story in there, we must receive that as truth, not as an allegory, not as a story, not as a fairy tale, but as truth, because it defines a foundational understanding for who God is. God is the creator. We are not the product of billions of years of accidents and evolutionary death that eventually we get to this amazing world that we have here. We are created on purpose. And that matters, not just in a philosophical sense or a science class, how do I work it out sense, but it matters in practical on the ground ways. Because Peter or whoever it is that's praying here with the rest of them, they say, we know that God is sovereign. We know that he rules over everything because he made everything. And if he made everything, it's all subject to him. He's the boss. I love the first chapter of Colossians where it talks about Jesus as the creator and the sustainer of all things. The world holds together because God chooses to hold it together. If that is true, then these guys have a boldness and a confidence and a comfort from that that you can't get from billions of years of accidental death that eventually results in humans. Because if God created everything, if it's on purpose, and specifically, if we as his uh, highest, this pinnacle of creation, if we are created on purpose as image bearers of God, if he knows us, if he loves us, if like the Bible says, he knits us together in, his, in our mother's womb, if before we are, even before mom knows that she's pregnant, God knows us breathes life into it. If all of that is true, then you can look at a threat from the Sanhedrin of be quiet or we're coming after you again, and you can say, it doesn't matter. I am loved, treasured, cared for by my heavenly Father who created me, who came as a man in the flesh to give his life for me, who rose from the dead, who has forgiven my sins, who has filled me with the Holy Spirit. All these things are true about these guys, and they're like, the Sanhedrin can threaten me. It doesn't matter. And it goes back all the way to Genesis. Verse 25. So, sovereign God, creator of everything, who, 
through the mouth of our father David, your servant, speaking of King David, David a thousand years before this, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. All right, so there's what he said in the quote, and then there's how Luke records for us how the quote is set up. Peter, or whoever it is that's praying out loud here, says, Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Bible as the Word of God, this is what we're talking about. It's not just a collection of historical things or fairy tales or poetry or songs or um, prophecy. Or it, it's not just an anthology, a collection of things. It is the Word of God, and it speaks of itself as the Word of God, so that Peter says, he's talking about Psalm 2 here, he's saying, King David, a thousand years ago, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's a mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit to write Psalm 2, which he then quotes. Psalm 2 is not just King David, who was a great songwriter, sitting around, humming, I'm going to try these words, and this doesn't rhyme, but I'll try it. That's not what Psalm 2 is. Psalm 2 is God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David as a mouthpiece, recorded for us as what we call Psalm 2, and now quoted in Acts. Psalm 2 is actually quoted a few times in the New Testament. This, this very part of Psalm 2, quoted a few times in the New Testament. So, what does it say? Why do the Gentiles, that is, why do the, the nations that aren't Jewish, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. When David wrote that, there are really two meanings going on. David, as the king at that time, is the anointed king of the nation of Israel. And he's looking at the, the nations around him, raging against the Jewish people, against David, the anointed king. He's saying, they are fighting against God and me, the one who God has anointed as the king. And yet, because the Spirit's working through this, and we know the rest of the story, we know that anointed there also talks about Jesus. The word Messiah is the Hebrew word anointed one. And so this is a messianic psalm pointing us forward to a greater reality. Yeah, it's about David. That's the surface level. But there's a much greater reality in this psalm that would become fulfilled later where it's not only talking about God and the king on earth, but God and the anointed Messiah, Christ, the Savior. So Peter is saying, look, Psalm 2 is happening right now. The rulers are gathered against God and his anointed, Jesus, who's at work right now. Now, he cuts off the quote there, which I find fascinating. Because if I was Peter or whoever's talking, I would have definitely included a little bit more of Psalm 2. Everybody listening there knew what was coming in Psalm 2. And they probably would have been surprised too when Peter cut it off. So if you want to turn back to Psalm 2, you'll find it on page 448. 
in the Black Pew Bible, Psalm 2, and we're going to read the first three verses, which we just read, plus gives us a little more there, and then we're going to go on. Psalm 2, starting with verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Who's the they? It's the Lord and the anointed. So the people of the earth, the kings of the earth, are setting themselves as rebellious against God and God's chosen anointed, Messiah, Jesus Christ. They're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the cry of every fallen human heart. We want to be our own Lord, our own boss, our own king. We want to rule our own lives. So you guys have heard me, heard me say hundreds of times, to repent means to turn away from our self-ruled life. This psalm is a picture of that. Kings, nations, people around the world saying to God and to his Messiah, we will break your bonds. You will not constrain us. You will not control us. We will be in charge of ourselves. Individual level, in this case, at a national level. We as a nation, we will not be controlled by God, they say. And then verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Peter should have included that, right? This is not God kind of chuckling at a joke. Let's forgive my irreverence here, but this is God you know, curled up on the floor, laughing so hard that he's in danger of peeing his pants. I know, God doesn't pee his pants, right? But this is, this is such a laughter that, like, this is the funniest thing in the world to him. The, the little people that he's made, you know, little two people, even the nations that think you're so impressive, they're like, we will not be ruled by you, God. We will be in charge. And God's response is not fear or worry or what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with the rebellious people? No, it's, he just laughs. Not in a derisive, evil way. Not in a, oh, I'm going to squash you now. You laugh. I'm laughing at you because you're basically mocking me. No, he's, this is, this is so backwards. This is so upside down. How can people that I created think that they can burst the bonds that I have put around them? How can they try to free themselves from me and declare that what I say is right is wrong and what I say is wrong is right? And, and how could they think that? And yet every one of us in this room is so guilty of that. Maybe even today. Maybe even just the last minute. Trying to redefine reality. Try to change the picture so that we can be in charge instead of God. God laughs. God is not threatened by those who would align themselves with each other against him and against his anointed. He does not panic. He's not surprised. He's not worried. He laughs. 
if you are surrendered to Jesus as the Lord and ruler of your life, what do you have to be afraid of? If the one who's in charge of your life looks at the nations gathered in conspiracy against him and just laughs, what do you have to be afraid of? If, if he is your Lord, what could come against you? Back to Acts verse 27. Chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city, city of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, he's going back not to just the day earlier when they're arrested. He's going back a few weeks earlier Jesus is arrested, sham of a trial, nailed to a cross, hung outside the city, mocked, spit upon, hated, abandoned by his friends. You're saying Herod and Pontius Pilate, so Herod was a Jewish king, but a puppet king, like he had to do whatever Rome said, or Rome just pulls him out and puts somebody else in. Pontius Pilate, the, governor, the Roman governor of the area. Herod and Pilate both play a role in the sham trial of Jesus. They both don't want to be responsible for his death. They're like, let the other guy deal with it. Okay. Refuse to courageously stand for what's true. Gentiles and the people of Israel. So basically everybody in the whole world. They're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus a few weeks ago. Then it says this in 28, to do whatever your hand, speaking to God again, and your plan had predestined to take place. So just like we could very easily skip over that, that statement of the inspired word of God that we say where the Holy Spirit was talking through David a thousand years ago, that was just mentioned, we could skim over that. We could easily skim over this, but what is, what is Peter saying in his prayer? He's saying, you, God are using the nations and the kings and the people, you're using them to accomplish what you have planned, predestined, determined from before time to happen. We serve a God who has planned things out and has made choices, some choices that we'll never know about, but some choices that we do not get to overrule. How do we... How do we balance that with choices that we do make and God's will and our will and all that? And it's, it's kind of a messy, confusing thing, and nobody's ever really figured it all out. But here we have very clearly proclaimed that God has predestined certain things to happen. If you tend to be somebody who values free will, personal autonomy, you may want to reject that and say, I do not want to serve a God who decides things beforehand, especially when we're talking about the idea of what the Bible refers to as election, that God elects, chooses whom he will save. Wait a minute, don't I get a choice in that? And so some Christians, well-meaning Christians, have, have said, we'll just remove that. We'll even say that it's not in the Bible. Well, it, it is, it's right here. 
We've got the idea of predestination, removing it may solve a little bit of conflict and tension in ourselves, but it also removes what is a foundational truth from the Word of God, that God is in control. What Peter is saying here is that that darkest moment in human history, that most unjust moment in human history, and that's a big claim, right? Because you got like you know, six million Jews killed in World War II. You've got the killing fields of Cambodia. You've got over a million Uyghur Muslims currently um, being forced into slave labor and killed in genocide in China. Like slavery of the early years of the United States. There's all kinds of evil, dark things in the world. And yet I would say killing the only innocent one to ever live is worse than all of that. And what Peter's saying is that darkest of all historical moments was planned, predestined by God. It was not an accident. It was not a failure of the plan that even before creation, even before the fall, which made it necessary, the plan of God was this. And he used Herod and he used Pontius Pilate and he used the Jews and the Gentiles and He's bringing it all together for his purposes and for his plan. And that can be a real comfort for us. Because in the case of Peter and John, they know that they are squarely in the middle of God's will. And they, if, if they die that day, it's okay. They are trusting in the sovereign predestination of God. Verse 29. He goes on, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. These people are threatening us, your servants. We are the apostles of the new church. We are the ones chosen by God. Look upon their threats, and I would say, squash them, Lord. Remove them from office. Put in new rulers who will honor you. Humiliate them. Have rebels rise up and kill them. Some Just get rid of these people. And yet, that's not what Peter Peter says. He says, now look upon their threats and grant to your servants, us, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they don't ask for vengeance. They don't ask for a change in the government that is mistreating them, threatening them. They simply ask for themselves to be bold and courageous and to be able to continue to proclaim eternal life through Jesus Christ. And they're hoping that God will continue to do the signs and the wonders, the healings, the things that God has been doing these last couple days with him. They hope that that will continue. They know that their role is not to make those things happen. Their role is to boldly, courageously proclaim life is in Jesus. This is a good thing to pray. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's like the earth... uh, 
is just so excited that the people of God are actually, you know, praying for boldness and courageous courage to, to be the witnesses of Christ that just, it can't sit still and the earth shakes, right? Maybe God sends an angel to like nudge the building that they're in at the time and things shake, whatever it is. But imagine you're, you've just been released from prison. You've come told your friends. You guys are praying together to give us boldness, Lord. We're, you know, we're scared, but we don't want to be. Help us to be your witnesses. Amen. <clears throat> Earthquake. Not like falling on you and crushing the earthquake, just a little bit of earthquake. Like, wow, maybe God really did hear us. And then what happens right after that? And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit's already dwelling inside of them, okay? Day of Pentecost, the Spirit's poured out on them. They're believers in Christ. The Spirit is in them, but they are now filled with the Spirit. So we leak, and we rebel against God, and we try to push the Spirit out from our lives, out of influence in our lives, and we need to be topped up, we need to be filled. And so the Spirit moves in them in a new way. Of course He does, right? So they've just yielded themselves to the Spirit, said, we want to be bold witnesses for you. We declare that you are the creator, the, the ruler of all. Help us to be bold witnesses. That I mean, that's the kind of prayer that God loves to answer, and so he fills them with the Spirit. And what happens? Not the same thing that happened a couple days earlier at Pentecost. There's no mention here of being able to speak in other languages so that all the people in Israel can hear what's going on and understand. No, the outcome of this filling of the Spirit is they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. So this, what we look at so far, deals with the idea of boldness in words. The last few verses that we're going to look at today deal with boldness in deeds or actions. Their words, their proclamation of Jesus as resurrected ruler, Savior, Messiah, that was countercultural to the day, and so the Sanhedrin wants to smash them Tell them to stop saying these countercultural things. But they're also going to not only proclaim countercultural truth, they're going to live in a very countercultural, radical way. Verse 32 is transitioning us into this description. Now, the full number of those who believed, now they're not even counting, right? It started with 120, they counted to 3,000, and they're like, we got 5,000 men. We saw that two weeks ago, and now we're like, just the full number, all of them. We're of one heart and soul. They're united together at a heart level. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. Now you're like, wait a minute. Okay, it sounded like communism again. What is it with Acts and the early church and this crazy socialist communist kind of thing? I don't like this. Here's good. Yeah, Peter's going to come back to it. Luke's going to describe it for us in just a couple verses, but I will try to make the case for you then that this is not what we think of as communism. It's them radically sharing all that they had, willingly, voluntarily, and temporarily. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
great grace was upon them all. It's not that the apostles are awesome speakers and leaders and administrators. In fact, in two chapters, we're going to see how they had no idea how to administer the growing church and they desperately needed help. It's not because they're impressive that God is doing these things. It's the grace of God at work in them. Grace means a gift. It's something given to us. You don't deserve it. Grace is given to us as a gift. If there is anything going on that is honoring God, that is building up his church, that is bringing new people to faith in Christ, discipling people into maturity, if any of that stuff is happening here at VCC, it is not because of me, Daniel, the other elders, you guys, the band, the kids workers, all of that plays a part in it, but ultimately it is only because God is choosing to shed his grace on us, to use us, to grow us, to love us. Now, we want to work hard, we want to be good at what we're doing, we want to be diligent, responsible, all those kind of things, right? But if it's not the grace of God doing it, then we're not actually building the kingdom of God. It is the grace of that's at work here. All right. Back to that idea of sharing everything. 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, this is really radical living. This is radical generosity. You got people of all classes, backgrounds, nationalities, languages, education levels, wealth, status, all that. They're coming together, breaking all of those man-made divisions that are very real, bringing, bringing themselves together in a group, and they're amazing. They're, they're selling what they have and giving that money to this common pot in order to provide for those who don't have. It's not coerced. It's not managed by the government. It's not mandated by the government. We'll see in the next chapter, it's entirely voluntary. Everybody's choosing to participate this or not themselves. This is not what we think of as communism. In fact, if you describe the communist state to the early disciples, they would have said, that is nothing like what we're talking about here. Communism as a coerced form of trying to take what some people have and give it to others has resulted in more evil and death than any other system of government in the history of the world. That's not what's happening here in Acts chapter 4. These are people loving each other practically in radical ways liquidating assets, sharing together. Necessarily, that is temporary. Because you can't just keep selling everything until there's nothing left to sell, right? You, you have to eventually kind of go back to regular life. But what we see through the rest of Acts is this, this kind of generosity, this kind of radical living, sharing with each other. What's mine is yours. I, am, I don't really own anything. I'm a steward of what God owns. I'm going to Give radically to you, my brother in need. We see that take place in a real dramatic way right here. This is an echo of what Jesus did. The ruler, owner of everything, empties himself. 
in order to become one of us. A few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas. The creator of the universe voluntarily weakens and empties himself to come as a bloody, screaming baby in the straw. Giving himself so generously, so radically. Last, last two verses. We're going to meet a key player in the book of Acts now. Thus, Joseph, who was also called Bar- Bar- <clears throat> excuse me, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is like Luke introducing us to this guy who's going to play a role later. He plays a pretty big role. Barnabas becomes an apostle. He becomes a church planter. He travels around the Mediterranean, sometimes with Paul, sometimes without Paul, planting churches, encouraging Christians, building them up. In fact, when Paul, who at this point is not even on the scene, but in a few chapters is going to be murdering Christians, when Paul comes to faith in Christ, it is Barnabas who welcomes Paul into the church, says, hold on, guys, hold on, he's changed. Slow down. I know he killed your aunt, but let's hear him out. And it's Barnabas. Barnabas takes Paul under his wing. He disciples Paul. Without this guy, we don't get Paul. We don't get the greatest church planter of all time. We don't get the guy who writes more books in the New Testament than anybody else. That's this guy right here. And where does Barnabas first show up in the church? We're told that he has a field that he sells, and he gives the money to the apostles just like everybody else is doing. What do we know about Barnabas? He's a Levite, which means he shouldn't have a field to sell because the Levites, the descendants of Levi, one of the tribes of Judah, of Israel, I'm sorry, they were not to inherit or possess land. They were the priestly class. They were to receive tithes from others, and they were to do their priestly duties and let other people worry about the finances and stuff. And they were to own land, and yet something's changed over the years here, and he's got land, and he sells it. If he owns land, and he's a Levite, he's one of the top. He's one of the most educated. He's one of the most wealthy. It says he's a native of Cyprus, island in the Mediterranean. So he grew up in paradise, right? He's got all kinds of things going for him. And yet he's so transformed by Jesus that his, his heart responds with a reckless uh, generosity. I'm, I'm going to sell what I have. I'm not supposed to have it anyway. I'm going to sell what I have, and I'm going to just give it to the apostles, and they can, they can feed the hungry people. I think, that's, I think that's probably why, for the rest of Acts, he's known as Barnabas rather than Joseph. We're told here, Joseph was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Wouldn't it be great if your reputation was such that people just stopped calling you by whatever your name is and instead just referred to you as son or daughter of encouragement? It's just like... Encouragement does not come naturally to me. I'm a critical person. I'm really good at pointing out what's wrong. And like, here's ten things, and nine of them are great, but I'm going to focus on the one that's wrong. Right? That's natural for all of us. And yet, 
Barnabas, son of encouragement. Here's one way that he's encouraging people. He's generously giving so that others can have what they need. This is a, a model for us. Not that you've got to go sell your field and give the money to the church, but what do you have that your brothers and sisters in Christ need? Maybe it's money, like this story. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's friendship, like the beginning of our story. There are lots of lonely people in the world. We've got lonely people right here. Maybe you're at a point in your life where like, the kids are growing and you've got a whole bunch of extra time and you're looking at some young families and they've got a million kids and five million on the way and like, they don't have any time and energy and they, you can spend some time with their kids. It'll be a blessing to you too. Maybe you've got a particular gift or a skill or something that you can do and somebody else in the congregation needs it. You can do that for them. We had some plumbing work that needed to be done at the Parsonage this week, and somebody connected to our congregation did that work for free. I didn't have to do it and make a big mess and get the basement all wet. We need each other. We need each other in different ways. Every one of us has something that another brother and sister in Christ needs. We need each other like members of the body. Talking to Mary before church because this pinky that I think I broke during volleyball is still not right. She was showing me some ways to stretch it before they go back to Florida. We're going to miss you guys. Go back to Florida. And uh, I was asking her, you know, so is this connected to this? Because when I stretch my pinky out, this hurts, right? Everything's connected. We are all connected. We need each other. What do you have? Time, talent, treasure, skill, willingness. What do you have that a brother and sister in Christ needs? And would you, like Barnabas, would you encourage them with that? I think of many people in our church that live this out. I think of somebody in our church who um, just just paid for the lodging for the ladies' retreat conference that happened this week. This person found out about the ladies wanting to go on this. We're looking for a place to stay. This person said, I'm just going to donate this money. And the lodging was entirely paid for then by that person. I think about Russell, who is always willing to drop what he's doing in order to fix some engine-related thing that somebody else has, right? Master troubleshooter. He's always willing to help. And sometimes he doesn't get his own stuff done because he's helping other people, right? At least once or twice in life. It's happened. I think about Trudy. She's playing keyboard this morning. So on Saturday mornings, Trudy spends uh, sometimes an hour, sometimes longer than that with our girls, teaching them keyboard and guitar and ukulele. She's, she's pouring herself out, blessing our girls that way. You can go on with all kinds of things like that in this congregation. And when, when you guys do that to each other, for each other, you encourage each other, you build each other up, you become more like this Barnabas guy. So 
Let me encourage you to keep doing that. Figure out new ways to do it. What do you have that a brother and sister in Christ needs? And can you provide them? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for these words and uh, the comfort that we get from them and the challenge that we get from them too. Lord, we confess not only do we need you, we all desperately need you, but we need each other. But Lord, help us to, to offer ourselves to each other, service and encouragement and blessing. Uh, Lord, for those of us who are proud, work in us so that we can receive those blessings and encouragements and that generosity from other brothers and sisters in Christ. May we um, be humble enough to say, yes, I need help. Thank you for helping me in this way. Lord, would you build us stronger as your body? Would you cement us together? We know that if we're in you, we are already united together, Lord, but make us, make us aware of that unity. Help us to, to love and serve and befriend and help each other in such a way that we could be like Barnabas, be encouraging to each other. All of that, Lord, falls under our submission to you as our Lord. You gave yourself away, and we want to give our lives away for your service, for your glory, for the good of your people, growth of your kingdom. So as we reflect on this, and as we get ready to sing this song about take my life, let it be, pray that you'd be working in our hearts and our minds, Lord. We can be the kind of people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name.